The road trip is a quintessential part of American life, and has been since the end of World War II. Families then, as now, packed their luggage and themselves into their automobiles and hit the highway to explore America's vast countryside. Many weird landmarks and local tourist traps sprang up along these highways, often promoted by excessive billboards. But if a family happened to drive along West Virginia State Route 16, they would see a very different kind of advertisement, built shortly after the highway itself, that would stand unchanged and unforgettable for nearly 40 years. West Virginia State Route 16, once referred to as U.S. Route 19, is known as one of the loneliest highways in the U.S. The road meanders through the southwestern portion of the state and is known for its beautiful views, state park, and sparsely populated towns. Along this highway was a certain billboard that would spark an uncomfortable silence to fall over any station wagon. Conversations would stall, road noise would replace car songs or games of I Spy, Curious children in the back seat may ask their parents why it's there. What happened? Questions tense parents deflect and evade. Though it no longer stands, that billboard haunts the memory of many a summer family road trip. The faces of five young children staring out at the travelers in black and white. Over time, the image faded. The children pictured resembled ghosts. Above the photos, the billboard read, What was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? And to this day, no one can answer that question. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Christmas Eve, 1945, Fayetteville, West Virginia. The town was, and still is, a rural and agricultural one, with hardworking people, many involved in the coal mining industry that supported much of the West Virginia economy. George and Jenny Sodder lived in Fayetteville with their family and were gathering together to celebrate the holidays. The Sodders had their first child, John, in 1923, and by 1945, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia joined them. In all, they had 10 children, ages 2 to 23. Mary and Sodder, the oldest daughter of George and Jenny, returned home from her job downtown with a surprise. Three presents for her younger sisters, Martha, Jenny, and Betty. The excited children begged their mom to let them stay up and play with their new toys. Jenny gave in to her happy children's pleas and reminded them that they still needed to finish their chores and go to bed before midnight. Exhausted from a long day, Jenny went to bed around 10, looking forward to spending Christmas Day with her family. Jenny found it hard to sleep. At 12.30, the phone rang, and Jenny got up to answer it. Wrong number. She wearily returned to bed and noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains wide open. Two of the chores the children were supposed to tend to, she drifted back into a restless sleep. 
At 1 a.m., Jenny woke to a loud thud on the roof. Thinking it could be squirrels or any number of things, she ignored it and went back to sleep. Half an hour later, she woke up again. Something didn't seem right. She smelled the air. Smoke. Jenny immediately roused her husband, George. George feared the worst. The parents rushed from their bedroom. The scene that greeted them was a nightmare. Their two-story timber frame home already engulfed in flames. A peaceful Christmas Eve turned to panic as George and Jenny started screaming for their nine children to get out of the house. Marion, the oldest girl, desperately tried phoning the fire department, but the phones weren't working. All of the Sodders escaped the blaze, except for the five children upstairs. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. George, unwilling to wait for the fire department to arrive, desperately climbed a wall of the house that hadn't yet caught fire. He was barefoot. When he reached the attic's level, he smashed the window, cutting his arm open, but he needed a ladder to get himself in and the children out. He yelled to his five kids inside, then jumped down and ran to the side of the house where he kept the ladder. It was gone. He decided to try to quench the flames on the stairwell, giving him access to the second floor. He sprinted to the barrel of water the family kept outside. It was frozen solid. George had an idea. He could pull the trucks he used for his coal hauling business alongside the house and then climb up to reach the second story. He darted to his two coal trucks and turned the keys in the ignition. Nothing. They had run fine the day before. He tried again. They wouldn't start. The Sodders watched helplessly as their house burned and smoke rose into the cold, dark West Virginia night. They prayed to see a fire truck drive up or see one of the five missing children emerge from the flames. They never even heard the children's voices. 45 minutes later, all that was left at the Sodder house was a mound of debris and ash. Just after daybreak at 8 a.m., the fire chief F.J. Morris finally arrived, more than eight hours after the flames began and far too late to help. He sifted through the ashes of the home, looking for any remains or evidence of what caused the fire. While appliances and parts of the house were recognizable, the search didn't turn up a single human remain. The chief concluded his investigation and asked a distraught George to refrain from disturbing the site until a more detailed investigation of the site could be carried out. The next day, the local coroner conducted an inquest to determine the cause of the fire and concluded that the culprit was faulty electrical wiring. A jury agreed. Four days after the fire, unable to bear the sight of their old home and in disobedience of a direct order from the fire chief, George Sauter bulldozed it and brought in additional dirt to create a mound. He and Jenny then set to work turning the site of their old house into a memorial garden for their five lost children. The funeral was held shortly after, with much of the town paying their respects. But two notable people were missing, George and Jenny. They couldn't manage their grief well enough to attend. Shortly after the funeral, the Sodders began construction on a new house next to their old one, rebuilding not just their home, but their lives. When installing the phone lines, 
the servicemen discovered the solder's old lines had been cut some distance from the house. Why would that be? George never believed the fire had been caused by faulty wiring. He had the entire home's wiring inspected just a few months before and found everything to code. The cut lines created doubt in George and Jenny's minds about the official explanation of the fire's cause. Why had the phone lines been cut? Why was their ladder missing that night? What were the odds both of his trucks failed after working perfectly the day before? How come the fire chief took eight hours to show up? Why hadn't the children finished their chores? And more importantly, why had they never even seen or heard any of the five missing children the night of the fire? There were too many unanswered questions. Only one explanation made sense to George and Jenny in 1946 and to many people studying the case to this day. The five solder children were not in the house when it went up in flames. Then where were they? Or where are they? The strange circumstances surrounding the solder fire started well before that fateful night in December. According to George, months earlier, a traveling insurance salesman, Fiorenzo Gianutolo, stopped by the house and talked with him. When George firmly insisted that he wasn't interested in purchasing additional home insurance, Fiorenzo lost his temper and began yelling at George that his home would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Fiorenzo's reasoning? An attack would be likely to happen to George given his outspoken criticism of Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy during World War II. Fiorenzo's remarks didn't come out of the blue. George Sauter, or Giorgio Sodu, was from Sardinia, Italy, and immigrated to the United States in 1908. His wife, Jenny, was also from Italy. And the insurance salesman? You guessed it, he came from Italy as well. You see, Fayetteville, West Virginia, while small and far from the East Coast, was actually a haven for Italian immigrants. Many still had strong ties to their homeland and were supporters of Mussolini. George was a well-known critic of the fascist government and wasn't afraid to get into heated arguments with people in town who thought differently. Perhaps Fiorenzo was just going to fall short of his numbers for this month and lost his cool. Maybe it was something more sinister. It's hard to say, though, as George himself would never speak about his life back in Italy. The remains of the fire, or lack thereof, also kept the solders up at night. Jenny became obsessed with proving her children were still alive. She began doing various experiments, burning chicken bones to see how long it would take for them to completely turn to ash, which they never did. She also studied a similar house fire in a nearby town that had killed a family of seven. The difference? That family's remains had all been found. My name is Skip Cruz. I was a firefighter paramedic for 32 years. I was just taken aback when I read the thing on the internet about that no no bodies were found. No matter how hot it is, skeletal remains, there was five missing children. It makes me feel strange that there, there's something missing there, that there isn't something that was thoroughly investigated, reported, but you know, you gotta look at the milieu of the times. 
70 years ago. Everything has drastically changed, but uh, my gut level feeling is something ain't right there. The circumstances surrounding the children's disappearance became stranger still when the older Sodder children mentioned an unsettling occurrence. One day, not too long before the fire, the younger children were walking home from school along Highway 21, as they always did. This time, they noticed a strange man who stared at the younger Sodder kids, never taking his eyes off them. At the time, the older kids thought he was strange. Could that man somehow have been involved? A few months after the fire, Sylvia Sodder was playing in the yard when she noticed a piece of a green object. She brought it to her dad, who had no idea what it was. George began asking around. He found an intriguing answer. Servicemen returned from World War II said it resembled a piece of an earlier version of a napalm grenade. George also found the ladder that was missing that night. It was at the bottom of a ditch more than 70 feet from the house. Given these discoveries, George wanted to know why the coroner's inquest had determined the cause of the fire was electrical. It turned out that the lead juror in that inquest was none other than traveling insurance salesman Fiorenzo Janitolo. With all of these questions, the Sodders demanded that the case be reopened. The police immediately set their sights on Lonnie Johnson. Lonnie stole a block and tackle from the Sodders the night of the fire and confessed to cutting the telephone lines having mistaken them for power lines. A block and tackle is a tool often used to remove car and truck engines in order to repair or modify them. George believed this was the reason his trucks didn't start the night of the fire. Lonnie was arrested and jailed for the theft of the block and tackle, but police didn't believe he was responsible for setting the fire. So Lonnie was later released and never investigated as a suspect in the fire. Soon, reports from eyewitnesses the night of the fire and sightings of the five missing children began making their way to Fayetteville. One woman said she saw the kids getting into a car the night of the fire before it started. A man mentioned that while driving, he had seen balls of flames being thrown toward the roof of the house. A woman who worked at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served the five children breakfast the morning after the fire she didn't recognize them until she saw their photos in the paper later. A worker at a hotel in Charleston mentioned two Italian men and two Italian women were with five children and checked in after midnight. When the worker tried to make conversation with the shy children, the man they were with cut off the interaction and spoke to the other adults in Italian. The group of nine rented a large room for the night and checked out early the next morning. The hotel worker had no idea where they were headed. Desperate for answers and distrusting the local authorities, the Sodders hired a private investigator, Cece Tinsley. Tinsley began to hear rumors that the fire chief, F.J. Morris, had actually found something when originally investigating the site of the house fire. Tinsley pursued this lead and it led him to a priest in Fayetteville. The priest told Tinsley that the fire chief had confessed to finding a human heart and unable to bring himself to show it to the parents the chief decided to bury it in a dynamite box in the ashes. Tinsley pushed the chief until he finally agreed to show Tinsley where the dynamite box was. They went to the memorial garden and began to dig. Tinsley lifted the box from the earth and opened it. 
inside was what appeared to be a human heart, presumably from one of the children. Only, it wasn't. After further investigation, it was determined that the heart had never been subjected to any fire damage. Also, there was another problem. The heart wasn't a heart at all. It wasn't even human. It was a beef liver. When confronted with these facts, the fire chief said he had staged the whole thing to bring a conclusion to the case and give George and Jenny some sense of closure. Beyond frustrated with local authorities, the Sodders wrote a letter to the FBI, begging for a competent investigation of the fire. J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, wrote back saying the Bureau would be willing to help, but only if the local police and fire department asked for their help. However, for some reason, the local authorities would not ask, and never did. George also arranged to let the Smithsonian excavate the memorial garden in 1949. The Smithsonian excavation brought them no closer to an answer. George and Jenny were running out of ideas. In 1952, they decided to put up a billboard on US Route 19, featuring photographs of their five missing children. The billboard heaved most of the blame on local authorities. The Sodders also offered a $5,000 reward, which they soon doubled, for information leading to the recovery of their children. As the decades passed, the Sodders received countless tips none of them leading to their lost five children. George died in 1968, having never found out what happened to his children. Jenny tended to the memorial garden for the rest of her life. In any photo you see of her after 1945, she's always wearing black. That's all she ever wore after the fire. Every year, even in old age, she found the funds to keep the famous Sodder Children billboard up hoping and praying that one day it would lead to answers. It never did. She died in 1989. That's also the year the billboard was taken down. Despite George and Jenny's monumental efforts, none of their five children were ever recovered and no sightings of the missing kids could ever be verified. Today, only one of the Sodder children who escaped that night of the fire is alive, Selvia. She doesn't believe her siblings died in the fire and is just as determined as her parents to find out what happened to them. She and her daughter spend time searching and following up on new leads and frequent online message boards like Web Sleuths. More than 71 years later, the question remains, what happened to the five Sauter children? One theory? is that they simply perished in the fire that cold Christmas Eve night of 1945. While this explanation would explain why no one's ever found them alive somewhere else, it also leaves many questions unanswered. Why all the sightings? Why would the phone lines be cut? And more importantly, where are the remains? A version of this theory that answers some of those questions is that the fire was an act of arson. Another theory is that the children were sold into an adoption ring, and the fire was a cover-up. While this may sound ridiculous in our modern world, at the time, it really wasn't that uncommon. Adoption agencies weren't anything like what we have today, and a loving couple desperate to have a child would pay top money to have that joy brought into their lives. 
One of the most famous baby snatchers operating at this time was Georgia Tan, who sold children she had kidnapped through different schemes to rich parents-to-be, primarily in New York and California. Tan made millions, and at least 19 children died at her adoption home under cruel conditions. But if the Sauter children were kidnapped to be sold, how did anyone sneak five children out of the house silently? Maurice was a 14-year-old boy at the time of his disappearance. Another theory popular in the online community is that this was a deliberate attack on the family. Perhaps it could have been a mafia family loyal to Mussolini and the fascists. But stealing children and setting a family's house on fire is not a typical tactic employed in mafia attacks. Still another idea put forth is that it was the Ku Klux Klan. Many people believe that the KKK only committed hate crimes against African Americans, but it's important to remember that they carried out their horrible deeds against immigrants of all kinds and Catholics as well. The Sodders were both. It is also interesting to note that the KKK went on to commit similar crimes, such as the Christmas Eve house bombing of Harry and Harriet Moore just six years later in 1951. Then there's the Coal War angle. The coal wars between the dominant coal companies of West Virginia were merciless. George Sauter made his living transporting coal. Who knows who he could have offended? Perhaps he offered a better rate to a particularly vicious company's competitor. Whatever the reason, an angered coal company was known to do terrible things. These companies had limitless financial resources and power in the region, matched only by other coal companies. This could explain why the local police and firefighters didn't want help from the FBI. Perhaps a corrupt force wanted to keep the case local and forget about it. Also, the Sodders billboard itself, which you can see on our website, thisisenigma.com, seems to imply the local authorities knew who was responsible, but refused to do anything. I'm Stacy Horn, and I write books. Such an incredibly sad story of loss, and the persistence of loss, and I just had to look into it. I, I couldn't resist. Everybody, I think, that hears about this story of these children who either died or disappeared um, is becomes similarly obsessed for a while. Some people never let go. Everyone I spoke to in the town, everyone was very familiar with the case. They remembered the pictures that used to be um, on the highway, or rather on the road along by the house, and everyone had an opinion about it. So what did happen to the Sauter children? Why has this mystery lived on for more than 70 years? Perhaps the answer lies not in the facts of the case, but with George and Jenny themselves. Jenny spent the rest of her life tending the memorial garden, wearing black, and believing that her children were still alive. George spent the rest of his life following every lead. One such lead was a photograph of a young dancer in New York he came across. The dancer had long dark hair, bushy brows, and full lips. She looked like an older version of Betty. A determined George drove up to New York and demanded to see the child, 
but the school and the parents wouldn't allow it. Frustrated, he could only return home. George followed up on every credible lead that reached him. His oldest son, John, even took him to follow up on a lead when he was so sick that he had to ride lying down in the back of the vehicle. Perhaps this is how the Sodders wanted it. Believing your children got to live and have a future, even if you don't get to be a part of it, may be more comforting than believing their lives were snuffed out at such a young age. That, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. I saw a lot of cases in 32 years. I guess I became callous to almost anything else I could ever see, all the car accidents, motorcycle accidents, building collapses, everything I had ever seen. But, you know, when children are involved, it's still, it, it just breaks your heart. It's just sad. A family lost five children on Christmas Eve, and they never let go of that loss. And the idea that they were kidnapped and still alive out there was something that they could live with. The truth is, even though it is incredibly unlikely for all of a person's remains to be completely incinerated, it is possible under the right circumstances. It makes sense the screams of the children were probably never heard. Smoke rises, and in the fire's early stages, they likely suffocated from smoke inhalation in their sleep. The solder home had large deposits of coal and gas in the basement. Any embers that reached those stores would have rapidly created an inferno. Coal fires can burn in excess of 3,500 degrees. Any bones left after being subjected to such heat would have been incredibly brittle. When the fire ravaged the structure of the house to the point of collapse, the second floor that the children were on would have smashed into the fire's core in the basement, vaporizing the remaining bones, leaving nothing but ash. When confronted with such a heartbreaking reality, who could blame the grieving parents for wanting to believe their children were still alive? Perhaps the fire chief really did bury the fake remains in an attempt to bring George and Jenny some semblance of closure and comfort when he saw how this obsession was taking over their lives. Or was even that an old wives' tale cooked up in a small town? In the case of the Sodder children, the simplest explanation may be all we need. is one thing we should mention before bringing this story to a close. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, George and Jenny received a letter. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but there was no return address. They opened it, perhaps thinking it was a bill or a letter sent to the wrong address. In the envelope, they found a photo of a young man looking off-camera left. At first, they weren't sure who it could be, but as they continued to study it, they recognized some familiar features. The dark eyes, the prominent nose and full-lipped mouth, the crop of black uncombed hair and bushy eyebrows. The young man stared off into the distance, like the older photo of him on the billboard. It was unmistakable. It was Lewis, but he was older, in his 20s. They turned the card over. It read, Louis Sauter. I love brother Frankie. 
little boys. So why didn't George and Jenny follow up on this lead? Well, they did. Not trusting the police, they hired another private investigator who set off in search of who had mailed that photograph to the Sodders. What happened to the private investigator? He was never seen or heard from again. We may never know what happened to the five Sodder children, but their memory lives on in the minds of countless young kids, now adults, who drove past that haunting billboard on State Route 16 on family road trips. Many of those adults now have families of their own. Perhaps the missing Sodder children would have families of their own and be grandparents today. Betty would be 77, Jenny 80, Louis 82, Martha 84, and Maurice would be 86. I can't help but wonder if one of the hundreds of thousands of people who passed that billboard on Route 16, years after the fire, perhaps with their kids in the back seat singing a song or playing a game, paused as they passed or glanced away, feeling a strange sense of familiarity. Because maybe they recognized one of those missing children's faces as their own. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Enigma. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information on the disappearance of the Sodder children, check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We have photos of the billboard, photocopies of the fire chief's original report, and the photo of Lewis that was mailed to George and Jenny. You can also find links to our sources there. If you'd like to hear more Enigma, then we need your help. It would mean so much to us if you would subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Please write a review on iTunes and we'll give you a call out in future episodes thanking you for your support. iTunes reviews help us attract additional listeners. Another way to help is simply by recommending Enigma to a friend who you think would enjoy it. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Enigma is written and produced by Alex Holscher. Research by Patrick Basquell. Original artwork by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. Thank you.